Welcome to Relay Chain, a podcast produced by Parity Technologies, where we discuss all things substrates, polka dots, and Web3. Today we have Ben Kampman, uh, one of our core devs at Parity, and we're going to talk about mentorship and getting started in open source software development. And I'm pretty excited about this because Ben was someone who mentored me when I came on. So oh, welcome, thank Ben. You. Yeah, I'm happy to be on. So we're about to re- release a People of Parity newsletter uh, featuring you. And one of the things you talk about is that how values have become more important to you over time. So can you talk about how you got started in open source software development and how your earlier projects have shaped your values? Yeah, I'm not sure if I would say that my my values have changed, but the ways by which I pursue them, I'd say. Uh, So I started out in open source as my very first job already. It was a multimedia software, but very early on, I moved on to web development. And there I was mostly working on the social web, not social networks specifically, but the social web in forums, uh, discussion boards, collaboration tools, everything that is intermediate uh, communication systems. And... One of the things that I started out even doing tech in the very first place was that I realized that it is a form for a person in civil society to make the most impact. The software that we build, the, the things that we build have vast impacts, can have vast impacts for many people. They have shaped entire industries. They have destroyed entire industries. The music industry is not at all what it was 25 years ago, for example. And that is mostly through internet and MP3 and and similar technologies. And so I always wanted to use technology to make a better world, to to go to with that cliche. But very early on, I didn't really know what that meant or what was required for that. And in Berlin, I was also part of many startups, many of which I wouldn't do anymore today, primarily because I want to see people use the software that we built. And many startups do that at the beginning, but when you focus on building a big team that you can then sell sell off to a different company, you don't really. And you don't really care that then it gets sold to, I don't know, Microsoft or someone else, and then it's going to be shut down. Then the software is not going to be used anymore. The software is not out there. The thing that you actually wanted to change is not going to change anymore. And so I've become a lot more deliberate in who I work with, I think. And this is actually one of the one of the things that, that I found interesting in Parity is that we have a strong engineering core. We we have very good uh, developers and engineers, but we're also not just sitting in our corner and just do our thing and play around with it, but we actually want to see different things being deployed and, and, and developed um, in the wider world. And have clients that use our software and that gives us a feedback loop gives us information of like how is it going to be used how do we need to change it because software and tech in general engineering in general even even beyond software is not its own for its own sake it is for a means and the means is if you build a bridge to cross the water and it's not important necessarily that it's the shiniest bridge but that it serves crossing the water so it's important to see can people cross it and that you don't just and sell off the bridge to somebody else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they change it. <laughs> yeah, or like one of the one of the bridge analogies that I found very interesting um, towards engineering was also we have a lot of these turf wars in tech and in, in open source. It's I think even worse on the right language to use and the right framework to use and that kind of stuff. And somebody made the comparison once: 
just think about if this with this mindset other engineering would would work like you would go somewhere and somebody build a bridge halfway through and it's it's made out of wood but you're a steel guy so you come in and say you know what we should do we throw in some steel on top of it now and then the bridge is going to collapse because the the wood can't hold the steel so you need to you need to consider the new means you need to consider what you actually um, want to use and pick the technologies for it and not just be over convinced by steel is going to solve our problems no it's not concrete either so engineering is about these trade-offs is figuring out what should we actually be doing to make the change in the real world that we want so speaking of these new tools, uh, we have blockchains now. Um, we do. <laughs> and I started almost a year ago. And I remember like one of our conversations that you said uh, you weren't like completely on board with the blockchain thing. Has that changed at all in the last year? Um, or like where do you see blockchain fitting into the bigger picture? I don't think I was referring to it as as I wasn't into the blockchain idea. I think I was referring to I'm not. I don't come from the blockchain background, which is. At that point, at least for parity was rare. Like most people came out of the, the bigger Ethereum or blockchain communities and had strong crypto ideas and crypto economics ideas. And I was mostly, yeah, I don't really care, which has to do with the same point that I was trying, like that I was saying before, like seeing developed, make an actual me change in the world and creating yet another crypto token is not affecting so much change in the actual world and does not really affect most people's lives aside from when you're an investor. But I don't really care if the life of investors changes much. So my background is more like in the social web on one side and then decentralization for the last five, six years and decentralized networks and, and how these fit together. And one thing that I I saw blockchain already provide at that point, but I'm not more, more convinced today, is many of the other peer-to-peer -peer networks out there miss some crucial parts of it, which is the trust factor that, that blockchains can provide. So, for example, if you think about IPFS, for example, um, IPFS is a great network uh, system to distribute data, to put data out there. But there's no, there is no guaranteed reliability in the system whatsoever. And blockchain, and we see that with Filecoin being developed at the moment, can provide that guarantee through economic mechanisms. But it can. Um, this is the other thing that I find very interesting about blockchain, which you also saw like in the Safe Network, which is another interesting system like this that we as our type of the engineering industry for the first time really take uh, economics into account. Like when I talk about building a bridge, I might use steel or wood and I might use wood because it's cheaper. Because it's cheaper is very rarely an argument in the internet or the, the way that we design architecture, our software nowadays. But if you, if you really think big and if you, if you look at how systems evolve over time, these economics become a crucial part of it. My most favorite example of that is the IPv6 rollout, which takes 25 years by now, I think. Like, this is, this is when we spec'd it. And it's still not there. Like, we're still struggling getting that in there. And it is a classic problem of the tragedy of the commons. Nobody has an inherent incentive inside this big network of the internet to do that themselves, because unless everybody does it, there is no benefit to no one. So why do that extra payment, this extra cost? Why incur that extra cost? And one thing that blockchain offers and some other networks now also start to offer is basically a penalty for not upgrading. It becomes expensive to not run the, the latest client because while the other ones are faster, they perform better and that kind of thing. And because you're validating on the network and you're, you're contributing to the network, 
through your resources, having the less performant one means you want to upgrade for that simple fact already. And it becomes part of the economic model of how you design the network and how do you think about networks. And I think this is something that we've failed to do for the internet for a very long time. And this is why the only actual model that we see are the advertising-based, which are all actually off the actual network. It is squeezed in from the outside um, that advertisement happens or even banking doesn't happen actually on the internet, but it happens through intermediate third parties that offer and service through the internet. Yeah, Gav has talked about this a little bit. I forget where, but it was something that like the internet hasn't really changed society. It's just changed how we interface with a lot of these things. Like the bank right. is still there. You just access it in a different way. Yeah, I think he did that um, even on a talk that I watched when I before I came here. So it must have been already two years ago or something. Okay. I think there, there, there was one, I would say Cambridge or London, that is a very famous one where he's in, in this university room, this university setting, and he's talking about how we've not gotten that, that actual thing across um, to make that an a self-sustaining infrastructure. It's not. It's sustained through outside means. Sure. So if we sw switch to like mentorship, you've started quite a few organizations and you can shill them here uh, if you want. I might. I know Open Tech School and Hackership. Yeah. Um, and right now we're in the middle of Hacktoberfest where we're trying to have be a little bit more newcomer friendly um, for our parody code bases. Yeah. Um, so like, what were your motivations for getting into mentoring and teaching people? Well, so I didn't study this. Uh, I only learned, learned on the job. Did okay. you study at all at university? No. Okay. I didn't. Um, after, after my high school diploma, or the equivalent of that in Germany, I went to, back then, mandatory civil service or military service. I did the civil service. And out of that, directly went into my first job. And up to that point, I've been like tinkering with stuff since like I was 12 um, because I had my dad uh, as a programmer or was a programmer at the time. And I had a computer from when I was 10. I was playing around with stuff, did my PHP and GeoCities and that kind of stuff. And got my first programming job and I was shit. I was really not good. But uh, it was apparently good enough for the company to hire me. And I got the lucky opportunity that uh, I found a mentor there who took me under his wing and shaped a lot of still, I think still a lot of the practice I do today, at least to, to a certain extent. And coming out of that experience, uh, coming back to Berlin, seeing at that time like the code camps coming up, but also uh, Rails Girls and, and other formats uh, coming up, I realized that this, this is an opportunity that most other people don't have. And even if you, especially in Germany, if you come out of university, you're not really good at the practice of programming for the most part. And the mentorship is something that worked very well for me. It doesn't work for everyone, but it's definitely something where... Um, I felt like I wanted, wanted to have more people have the opportunity to do that. And so with Open Tech School, we created an open mentorship program, if you will, where we offer workshops where you have people from the industry, as you say, in, in, the, in the field, come and coach and help you out. But we have guided materials and that kind of stuff. And in general, I think our education system is not well equipped for the, for the challenges that you do, in particular, because we're not teaching how to learn, but we are we're teaching still materials and these are almost always outdated. Like through this 10, 12 years, I've probably pivoted three or four times completely in the stack that I'm using. And that's not something that you learn per se anywhere, but a mentor can help you through this kind of stuff. And with Hacktoberfest, it was really just bringing up the, the same spirit and idea again, which we 
do have in in parity um i've been also been part of the onboarding team and you mentioned at the beginning i, I was onboarding you um onboarding here is a little tougher i'd say but um still we, we try to make it more accessible and um, accessibility is actually one of the one of the main issues like not everybody has the opportunity and had a computer when he was 10 and had a father who could program and had the spare time and had like internet when he was 12 or something. Um, I think this also changed a lot because there's a lot more and different learning materials out there now with, with YouTube in particular offering a lot of stuff about Code Academy and um, many other things. But I was just talking to one of the people who's currently running the Open Tech School and the formats still work very well. Like you, you, there's a certain component to learning that is inherently social. You still want to learn from a different person, from another person. You can learn a lot through dry materials, if you will. Um, at, at some point, you, you want to have social interaction. And very often, it just simply helps you to talk about it and, and get into that. And we try to get Substrate more into this direction and get parody generally into more into this direction. However, we have a lot of people out there that want to contribute and whenever we do take the time to actually write up a good newcomer issue, not beginner issue, um, our code base is way too advanced for, for beginners to start with Rust. It's, I would not recommend that. But newcomer into our code base, and it's still complicated enough. It's, it takes a lot of time to actually write this down and make it a good issue. And they're gone in a day. And so we looked at Oktoberfest and thought about what do we actually want to do here? Because sure, we could offer a bunch of these tickets again that then are just about a bug fix here or a small thing there. But one of the things that I find very interesting inside Parity is I talk to a lot of people and they have a lot of great ideas and things we could do and things we could build um, and things we think we can already build, but we just don't have the time for it yet. And very little of that is spread outside of the company at the moment. While I think that there's a lot of interest around us um, of people who are like, they might also have, have good ideas, but they have no way of knowing whether they are uh, with the substrate is in a position that they could use it um, to do this idea. So we started also going internally around and said, hey, do you have cool ideas that you think could fit into the maximum time frame of a month? Let's write them down. Let's explain what they are. Let's explain where you probably want to get started with this and created these, these Hacktoberfest bigger projects, we call them, uh, which ranges from everything, specific runtime modules where we have a ton of ideas um, and a ton of things I think you have, you have some yourself, um, of things that we want to build and we, we want to see happen over proof of concepts, over tooling around it, um, over consensus mechanisms that we'd love to see, but we just don't have currently the resources to do. We might still end up doing them in a year or two anyways, but we shouldn't be the only ones doing this. And we would like to see a more, a bigger ecosystem of people challenging what we're doing and, and how we're doing things. And again, then we're back at the feedback loop of us learning from them and getting the, the software out there and actually people using it to, to build stuff. Yeah, so in this feedback loop, I think I mean, everybody experiences at some point where they get some very, so let's say, highly critical feedback. Hags, where do you see people, when they're new to programming, where do you see them right. getting stuck? And what's the best way to deal with taking feedback? Right. I think there's, there's different levels of criticism, and it's especially in the open source community, often not easy for people to distinguish between them. So unfortunately, we, we have a fair share of assholes, and some of them have been very publicly ousted in the last year, and I'm very grateful for uh, a, lot of, a lot of things we have seen there where people were just not doing constructive criticism in the first place. And 
you you definitely we definitely have that um and it's a it's a constant issue that that we've been i think for the existence of open source we we also have a lot of icons who are known to be not cool people to hang out with simply and so uh, if you get a pr and you have this kind of feedback it can be very hurtful it is on an emotionally on an emotional level very hurtful which i find super odd because we are usually the part that is picked on at school We are the ones that are ousted. We are the ones that are socially excluded. Um, so we know how much hurt that can do and how, how hurtful words can be. But yet we, we do that. It's, it's mind-boggling to me. I don't get it. Um, but it's, it still happens. If that happens, and this has happened to me, by the way, I can only advise you to move on. There's really very often very little worth fighting for in these situations. Sure, nobody likes to see their work thrown away, but it's... Don't fall for the sunk cost fallacy. Just because you've invested so much, you have to continue investing. No, it's just going to be more hurtful. I'd rather recommend people look at, at projects that are trying to get that extra step to get people included. Um, and I try to get Substrate and our projects to to be more like that. But we have also some other challenges on this. But there's there's a few really clear indicators. So one of the best, most obvious ways is that they have a code of conduct, that the readme is up to date and explains how to actually run the program, that their contribution guidelines are clear and, and explain what needs to be done and what they expect from one. And then look for newcomer issues, um, beginner issues and mentoring issues and uh, see if there's any way to connect with the people. Even if you have a mentoring issue, very often there's a way to still reach out to that person via chat or Gitter or something else. Many open source projects start to build communities around the software and the software building. And there's a movement that tries to get non-code contributions more valued, uh, which is also something that, that we've been lacking a lot with, not only in terms of documentation, but also community work, outreach, design. There's a lot of work that happens that is off GitHub and therefore often forgotten. And so they, they usually have some other means to connect and, and get together. And if you get there into the Gitter and they are friendly and they help you out, it's very often very helpful to just figure out what the issue is about. And that's definitely the communities I would recommend starting with. If you're learning, however, there's a similar but other issue that you have. Um, when we're doing a hackership, which is a full-time learning program, we often told people that they shouldn't forget that learning itself is a very hard job. You're, you're asking your brain to rewire itself. And our science and what we, what we know of, of learning and anything around education so far tells us that there's no point in doing 60 hours of that. If you get like three hours concentration time, then a break and another three hours a day, that's plenty. That is already a lot. When you get tired while you're learning, listen to your brain. It's not going to be able to take anything on top. I think one of the world chess champions, Bobby Fischer, said he only practiced three hours a day. Yeah, and that's that's about as much as for the brain to actually evolve, it can do. And then it actually needs time and it needs time to settle, which is what we call sleep. So when whenever there's like a, a cold school or something that, that boosts with 60-hour weeks, that's not good. And what they're trying to sell is 60-hour workers, so people that are willing to just go on. Although also science tells us there, this is stupid. Like out of the 20 hours, you're not only wasting most of it, you're actually doing more damage than if you just stopped after 40. But what you, what you will also see is at some point, you get into this desert of despair, this dip in the learning curve where everything just doesn't seem to work. It seems hard. It doesn't make sense. Everything just sucks. 
And there's, there's still like two and a half ways that we got most people through that in, in hackership and that I would recommend. So the first one is social structure. What we did at Hackership is we had a group of people that were not doing the same things, but they would still learn together. So there was a the cohort feeling kind of thing. You don't need to have them in the physical same space, but just have, for example, a weekly check-in time. And then everybody prepared what they did the week. And then all of a sudden you realize, I didn't waste this week. I did actually do a lot of things. And when you look over that over longer periods of time, you actually learn how much you learned. Because learning has this annoying capability that as soon as you reach the point that you learned it, it seems obvious to you. So you don't realize anymore how much work it was to get there. Um, and so having these, these snapshot time points help you a lot. And the social structure of having mentors or other people to just share your struggle with. It's like, I, I feel like I didn't move at all again this week is fine because they're going to have that next week and you are going to have a good week. And so you, you can help one another. The other thing is, when you're at the point that say, okay, I think I've grasped this language framework, whatever, and you're like, want to get into, let's build something with this, like actually use it and, and see if I, if I understood this correctly. Pick a project that you're passionate about beyond learning. Maybe it's just an itch you want to scratch or something that your family wants to use or something that makes your life or the life of someone you, you care for easier. Because this level of despair in using something if you only do it for the learning, there's going to be chore tasks, there's going to be stuff that you don't need to do because it's a repetitive task and you just do it over and over and over again for 30 times now. And it just feels annoying. If it's only for the learning, you know that you're not going to get anything out of that. So you're going to stop. But that means that everything beyond that that you want to learn and that you're going to learn is not going to be part of your journey anymore because you keep pushing that annoying thing ahead of you and not get over that stumble. While if you have something that you really care about, you're like, yeah, Jesus, this is annoying, but fuck it, I want to see this thing happen. So you, you have a higher motivation and intrinsic motivation to get over this. And that's the other thing that um, I think these are the two main things that I see people struggling with that really help. And now I can actually plug the open text. So the open text tool is, uh, for example, doing co-learning uh, sessions. So every two weeks, I think server backend and server frontend um, biweekly in Berlin. So if you're building anything on Ruby, on Python or whatever, and you're working in this field and you have questions or you you just want to do that for two or three hours with people, the Open Text School is hosting these sessions where there's experts from the field that can help you get unstuck and that kind of stuff. So Open Text Schools, we have a few in Europe um, and there's similar systems in the US that, that offer similar, very often, uh, Hackerspaces offer similar sessions or something, either around the technology or just openly. Yeah, I wish I had some of these community type things when yeah. I started. Um, I started at like a pretty small town and then also got a computer when I was 10. And I went to this summer program in like 2003 yeah. where they had like an AI program. And so the first programming language I ever saw was Lisp. Oh, okay. And, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> but it was like a, you know, a six week summer program or something. And then I went back to my small town where nobody else was yeah. into computers. And I was like, oh, I'm just, I'm bad at this. Like, I didn't yeah. make anything work. And there was nobody else I was really talking to. Yeah. Um, and then it wasn't until, like, probably four years later in my control systems class at university, we had to program a blimp to fly around yeah. indoors and, like, not crash into any walls or anything. Yeah. Um, so, like, a lot of, like, gains and feedback and, like, embedded so like systems. A, like an embedded, yeah. Yeah. And, um, oh, I'm actually, like, this thing's actually flying around and 
not crashing into things. Like, that's cool. But I had this huge gap where it just in my brain, I was like, oh, yeah, I can't program anything. That's Yeah, this is, this is one of the things that programming has to it, that it is so wildly everywhere by now. Like, multiple machines that this is going to go through um, are programmed by various thousands of people. It's also uh, very beneficial because... I don't know if you know of NodeCopter, for example. It's no. a it's a it's a project by Node.js people who've gotten a, a bunch of what's it called again? Not Blimp, but the, the helicopter or quadcopter, quadcopter or drone. drones in general. Yeah, um, that run Node.js, and so they have workshops that they run with kids, like fourteen, sixteen years old, to program them to program them into inter- like when they fly to interact with one another, to not fly into a wall and that kind of stuff. Um, and there's like two or three hour workshops and all of a sudden, sudden like kids realize that the picture that you might have from what programming is when you look at the, uh, what media portrays it often because it's not that flashy and so media needs to do something around it to make it look interesting can be vastly different from what you actually do. And what we did for most workshops is that we get, tried to get people to this point where they come to, when we sat down with the coaches the first time, to the spark, to the moment where you have this feeling of incredible power in the moment because you realized you just made that machine do it, um, which is a high motivator for a lot of people. But depending on how you get started and also like who your coaches are and how you get started, you might never reach that point. And I think it's very, um, the, the blip example that you mentioned is a good one. Um, there's different ways you can access that. Uh, for young generation, 14, 15 Programming on a computer doesn't make a lot of sense, but programming on an app for a phone is something they they love. Playing games on this, inventing their own games is, is a big thing. I was never much, like, I sure, I played video games at the beginning, but programming games was not nothing that I ever aspired uh, or found interesting. But that is a, another accessible avenue for others. Embedded is another. Having robots move around is another. And I think one of the things is don't believe that you can't program also because you don't know logic or math or whatever they tell you i didn't study any of this either and don't give up like if you see a different avenue like you've not maybe you tried something on the computer didn't quite work and the error messages you got well we suck at error messages mostly so sorry about that um but now you've got the chance to program a drone try it it probably is a very different experience and might be one that uh, is much more attractive to you and and helps you understand some of the basic concepts at least. Yeah, so when we talk about like pivoting tech stacks in different programming languages, what skills do you find to be the most important to give you the ability to pivot quickly? Oh, that's a tough question. So to me, it's, it's curiosity for sure. Um, I see a lot of a lot of things pop up all the time and it's especially coming from the web the javascript world had this idea of uh, framework fatigue that every two years you had to basically reinvent your entire stack and learn everything new and that can be quite exhausting um, for sure but you see things settle down over time as well like for most languages and for most frameworks we we have major shifts and we we see them but nothing is that new uh, not having a formal background i can recommend still learning the basics of formal background, like do the Codecademy 101, or um, I think Khan Academy also had one. A crash Course for sure has has a very simple computer science introduction course, which is just 15-minute videos, fast-paced. Um, 
and like 10 or 12 of them go through that and you it still helps you to understand the exact machine that you have in front of you i was programming for the longest time i didn't really understand it beyond a certain point in the depth that it went to but even for me like going into stuff going into rust for example the entire way that borrowing and and borrow trackers and uh, this entire management of memory how that worked because i i haven't worked in system languages before so i used c and g object very early on in my career but it was like very briefly only and then mostly dealt with python java and that kind of languages which just abstract that away from you coming back to that it was quite a challenge i have to totally admit that i saw the same challenge when when we were doing functional programming courses and people came there with with Java and their strong object and typing background, and then were supposed to now forget that without challenging your own assumptions. You need to be willing to throw away what you know <laughs> in order to learn again. But we often saw people starting with computers, finding functional programming easier and much more accessible than people who had five years of Java background transitioning to functional programming because it breaks just so many things that they thought how this is supposed to work. Um, it is this annoying being out of your comfort zone thing. Uh, I've I've done a fair share of freelancing, over 10 years of freelancing. And so I'm very comfortable by now with being uncomfortable because I don't know what the next gig is going to be. I don't know whether, uh, whether I'm going to write a bill next month kind of situation. But learning always requires you to accept that you do not know everything yet. And that's by itself threatening so i think if if you get comfortable with accepting that you do not know uh, it's a much more helpful process it's still challenging though you could say a similar thing about blockchain and like crypto tokens that you have to kind of forget how banks work and how a lot of other applications work like. well luckily <laughs> barely any of us knows how bank works in the first place <laughs> it's, it's such a complicated system but like even even its fundamentals yeah it's it's very true and I think this is this is one part where, with Substrate, we um, again stand in front of this challenge. Uh, I was writing about that as well, um, or mentioning that in the interview that you were referring to at the beginning, for the newsletter. Um, what what Substrate offers is even beyond what most people in the blockchain sphere can perceive at the moment, where you allow the not only the so the software to be open source, which is something that we as an industry agreed on is right. I'm not going to make that point anymore. But what, we, what we've been seeing in the last 10 or 15 years is, are these data silos. And we, we have to come to accept that the software isn't the important part, but the data and who has control over that is the actual important part. And that is out of, out of the reach. Like even if you use an open source software, even if I host an open source software, if you use my open source software, I have po power over you. That as a user, as, as an open source or free software, if you will, um, community we actually would like to have at the at the actual end user, um, at least the possibility for that power. They don't have to execute it all the time, but they should have the the possibility to do that. And very often they don't because it's still in behind some server. And just federation and decentralization, as we've been seeing it, um, is not going to solve that. Um, you being able to run your own version if then the user contributes to your software and they don't have any control over it, it's still not fair. With Substrate, this can fundamentally change because the, the chain itself can be upgraded. 
And the way it can be upgraded can be through various means. In particular, it is a means that the chain decides by itself, which means that I can write a software now, as we did with Kusama, we wrote a software now, but there's a network out there that we as a software developers can offer to make an upgrade to, but they decide whether they do it or not. And that that is a very powerful thing because it means that we agree that the network is the power and the powerful entity and not me as a software developer can force um, something upon this this network now, but that they have to do it. And just imagine if, if a Facebook update would require a 51% democracy uh, to agree of their users to agree on their software update. Would they do the same evil they do? For sure not. Because they couldn't, because they cannot screw over the users anymore. And that's a very strong power shift that I consider like this open source community, this open source network, um, where we actually talk about the, the ones that are controlling the access being governed in a democracy, democracy style, or at least they can be, which is something that we were not even able to do before. This goes into this entire idea of DAOs and these kind of things. And I think that is... It's overall something that we need to start having a conversation about. And our space, blockchain, but tech in general, needs to see more that what we do has an impact, not only an economical one, but also on societies as a whole, um, which we have been seeing over the last couple of years latest. Like, if you don't didn't get that memo yet, I'm sorry. Um, And we have these huge entities that completely outside of any democratic control right now can influence elections. That is not something that we can accept. And it's that it's the software that we built so as we, an industry, at least. Not me personally. I have not worked for Facebook or Google. If we go back to like thinking about talking about upgrading the system and giving users yeah. more of a voice in the system, uh, Facebook's control over their network is also their profit edge. And yeah. so... There's been a lot of talk about funding open source, open source business models. Um, how does blockchain and these new networks change funding and open source? And how do we ensure that we actually have like a sustainable network that's also giving users a voice? I think most of mostly of that in if if you look at existing models, which is something that I do not know why we like to not do as an industry come up with our own taxi services and call it something else. If we look at existing frameworks of how did collaboration work before we had the internet and how did you organize these issues, one of, one of the most widely known and um, very popular actually in, in Germany would be a collective. So you would have stakeholders um, that might have different amount of stake, but it's a base democratic system. Everybody has one voice. And so you could easily take a similar system like this, where you say, I have a bunch of members. It is still a for-profit, if you will, but these, these profits are not given to a third party, but back to its members in the end of the day. So they can come up with whatever they think is a good pricing scheme inside the system, for example, if you think of a network. And they would also have an inherent interest to further their software. So for sure, they would make buckets available for software development in this. If you go outside of the software ecosystem, that work costs money is a normal thing. Getting something for free, telling normal people, quotation marks, what we do in open source, that we give that away 
for anyone is crazy. And it's not only crazy in a, in a capitalist system. It is also simply that other people are like, yeah, but how do you pay your rent? And that's a fair point to make. Um, I think what we have in the, in the open source and free software area very often neglected is that people need to pay rent. And that money by itself is not a bad thing. That money can be used as a means as well. It is an enabler for something. And very often it is used as an enabler for something. For example, to secure infrastructure, to make sure that certain quality is checked. Like when we hire people to, to do QA, it is to make sure that the software works the, we, the way we expect it, not because we do believe we are shitty developers. Well, both. But like there, there's, a, there's a point behind this. And I think the, the problem that comes with that is that many people associate money with power, which isn't incorrect. But they always assume that only with money comes power. And that is incorrect. Um, you almost certainly have a power dynamic within your three contributor group for your small project. Um, if that person says something and that person says no, it's not going to happen. You have these dynamics. This is social structure. We are social animals. This is how it works. But many people are scared about money influencing that too much. Uh, while dismissing that these social structures already exist. So I think what we need to reckon with as a community is mostly about that money can be a good thing, that money does not mean somebody's buying power necessarily if we manage this right, which is quite honestly not too hard to do. There's a lot of nonprofits, there's a lot of organizations, uh, especially if you look now into into the area of journalism, for example, where a lot more Organizations are popping up that are non-profit journalist, investigative journalist uh, systems, which are donation and project-based. There's models for this. We don't have to come up with a new thing here. I think blockchain has this power, especially uh, through, through DAO and similar structures, to allow us to do that on an even higher level. Um, right now, what is a big challenge for, for most open source projects is that while the work can be done anywhere in the world and the collaboration happens all over the globe, the money movements are not. And especially the legal ramifications they bring are making it very complicated. And systems like Open Collective are starting to, to work on exactly these issues. And there's no way we will ever be able to get any dower or something recognized that can't somewhat deal with what we have and or to, and or transition out of these infrastructures that we currently have. So just assuming that you, you build it out and therefore it's going to be solved is also just too simple. But the, the bigger issue is mostly that we need to accept that managing money costs money and that we need to look into the mirror and decide truth heartily, not some ideological view on this, what do we want to do with money? And most of the time, people don't want to ask these questions. And this is why they do not accept funding in the first place. And then they would also not know how, like, what account to put it on and move that around and taxes and that kind of stuff. Um, we, I've been actually talking with a few people, like, because Rust is in the state. Rust is in this moment where it has received significant recognition. It doesn't have any legal entity, right? It came mostly out of Mozilla, and they have been... Um, supporting it for a very long time, but they've also been clear we don't want to be the Rust organization or we don't want to handle this money um, and that kind of stuff. And more and more, especially big companies are coming up and saying, look, what we do for most major 
systems and languages that we use is even if we don't have a seat on the table, like we have major contributions to it because we need them to progress. If they stop progressing, this is an issue for ARM. This is an issue for Microsoft. Um, so we have an inherent interest to give money to this because it's it's a risk that we as a business otherwise shouldn't don't want to take. But they can't accept it. They don't have a legal entity to accept it. And uh, they're, they're, there's currently discussions around how, how to do that, how to move with that. Um, most of the things are just currently as indirect payments, if you will, like uh, Microsoft, uh, they have a partnership with Microsoft, which gives them just uh, Azure pipelines for free and that kind of stuff, which they can just put on their, their books and it doesn't matter. But it's interesting to ask the question, how much and how big can this community grow without some form of management of some people that not only distribute money, but also make sure that roadmaps actually happen and the public expectation that you have on a big organization is actually met. Um, we, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, and I mean, defining roadmaps and stuff gets into governance, which I don't yeah. think we have time to go down that no. hole. Um, <laughs> I think we've hit enough on like the uh, the funding and yeah. programming stuff. Um, if we shift to looking at like a decentralized web where do you think Polkadot and Substrate are in development and like on the road to being in production? I'm not super involved in Polkadot at the moment. Um, we've seen uh, Kusama go out there and um, we're waiting for Cumulus right now, which is going to be uh, the next interesting step. I think what we didn't quite anticipate or I am unsure is how much adoption it will have, especially early on, how many parachains are actually going to be because Polkadot by itself is just as a relay mechanism is kind of useless without um, services provided through other chains, which is already still like hard to explain to people what that even means, what that is, what is this this infrastructure chain. And there we we hit this, this issue that you also have in open source funding when you talked about non-user facing things like deep down libraries like OpenSSL uh, being a really good example that so much relies on because they're base infrastructure that nobody in particular funds them, but everybody relies on. And we noticed too late that we don't have enough resources working on them. And this is where within Polkadot, I'm still unsure about many parachains, how they would actually ensure that they work uh, in a sustainable long-term manner. I've seen some ideas where people are like, look, this this is obviously the part that needs to be public and this um, this is the base infrastructure. And then we offer different UIs and different adapts on top of that, um, that if you use ours, we make some money through that. Um, but because we piggyback on this specific power chain, we have an inherent interest to continue working on this as well. And that's that's definitely an interesting idea to go down. For Substrate itself, I think we need to start thinking beyond blockchain, if you will. I'm more keen into this entire the, the bigger Web3 vision where blockchain is definitely a very important integral part because it can offer safety and security that simply many other decentralized systems can't. But we also need to th start reaching out and, and see how to combine other other projects with this. So blockchain itself is is a pretty expensive technology, talking about costs and that kind of stuff. You shouldn't store everything on chain. You probably do not want to put most stuff on chain because it's just too expensive. Um, but only the stuff that you really need to have in this in the specific registry. So 
thinking of a, a simple app, where do you put the user avatar? Where do you put user profile information? Well, IPFS is a, is a common answer that we that we give, but Substrate itself doesn't give you much facilities to do that at the moment. So one of the projects that I'm also involved in is um, Substrate LFS, uh, large file storage, where we look into mostly storing static data and how how you might only need the Substrate node. And then you can say, like, you upload the file to the Substrate node and it uses in it, its internal uh, network that it has to distribute the file and to make sure that it's available and that kind of thing um, without necessarily having the same assurance that you have for stuff that is really stored in the state itself, but what you would consider for practical reasons close enough insurance. So for most cases where it's not that backup of that bank account, you don't mind that you only have a 99.99% SLA that's good enough for most stuff. Yeah, so like you could have a, a hash that's stored on chain and yeah. then you you can provide the pre-image later. So the, the, the basic idea that I often have is you you have the same RPC call, you upload a file to the RPC and you get, in IPFS is called a content ID, which is the hash of, of uh, and some metadata information. And you get that back and then you can store that on chain. And one idea for LFS is then that you have what we consider a soft enforcement saying for all the CIDs, because I know that their type, I can see them uh, in the state on chain. If I'm a validator and I see a new CID, I try to download it from someone else. Whoever produced that block must have it. So therefore I can fetch it from them at least. And then I store it. And whatever I tell you what my best head is, the state that is in there and all CIDs that are in there, I can, I can also give you. So even even if you synchronize the block, you might not get all the content from earlier all the time, but the latest state you would be able to reproduce um, by going through that to the other validator and say, "Hey, you said in that state you have that CID. Please give that to me," and they would be able to provide it, which is already in between. It is definitely not. Uh, it is more reliable than what IPFS offers today but it's less reliable as in we have the entire history all the time. You would not necessarily be able to, to go back in time and uh, switch back to an old avatar because it might not be available anymore because nobody kept it longer. Sure. So you answered my last two questions without me oh. asking them. <laughs> um, if you want to wrap up with um, any links or things you want to promote where people should contact you or sites to check out. Yeah, sure. I mean, so this this is only like another week, I think, when we get it announced um, before uh, Hacktoberfest is over. But I still would like to to plug it. Substrate.dev slash Hacktoberfest um, gives you the information. We also have cool swag. Uh, if you contribute to the um, Substrate ecosystem, which does not necessarily mean only Substrate, but also depending libraries and, and crypto and that kind of stuff. We have some special swag for Hacktoberfest. Aside from that, we also, of course, have tagged a bunch of issues with Hacktoberfest that we've brushed up and cleared out and explained better what we expect there to happen. So if you want to go to the normal four PRs, uh, Hacktoberfest, you can also go through that. If you're interested in any of the other things that I talked about, I'm on, on GitHub as Gnunicorn. Uh, you find me on gnunicorn.org. Um, you can ping me up, GitHub, Riot, whatever you like. I'm available. All right, we'll put some notes in the uh, yeah. in the show link. And I think we have another hackathon, online hackathon coming up this winter. Not official yet, but 
I, I, think I heard so. Yeah. I heard so. I don't have many details myself either, though. I only heard that there's something in the plans. So, all right, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks, Ben. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Relay Chain. We'd love to keep in touch. Follow us on Twitter at Relay Chain or email podcast at parity.io. Our team at Parity includes some of the leading peer-to-peer networking developers, consensus algorithm inventors, blockchain innovators, and Rust developers. If you want to learn more about our work or want to work with us, visit our website at parity.io and sign up for our newsletter at parity.io newsletter. 